Okay, um, I want a show of hands. You might be embarrassed, but please don't be embarrassed if this applies to you. But I'm genuinely interested, has anyone ever been to a K-pop concert here? Who's been? Come on, come on, hands right up. No shame, don't be ashamed. Nelson, Rebecca, Wendy, is that it? Just three of you have been to K-pop? Oh, oh, Lisa has. Don't be ashamed, it's okay. Um, I, I hear that uh, if you're a first-timer at a K-pop concert, it's actually a pretty scary affair because you don't know what's going on. So I, I looked up, not that I'm going, okay, I haven't got tickets to Blackpink, I couldn't afford it, but um, top 25 tips to survive your first K-pop concert. So I had to look this up, um, and I'm not going to show you all 25, but here are some of the tips for your first K-pop concert. Number two was fan chants. Apparently this is a thing. See, in other concerts, this might not be a thing, but at certain times during the concert, all the fans know these things that they chant. And you don't want to be the only person who goes and doesn't know them. So learn your fan chants. Sleeping pills. Not for during the concert, but for all you little excited people who won't be able to sleep the night before, but you need to sleep because it'll be a really tiring affair. So take a sleeping pill, have a good night's sleep, so that you can go to the concert the next day. How about number five, cough drops? Because there'll be all the screaming. Makes sense, doesn't it? Make sure you can still keep screaming. Number nine, phone charger. You don't want to be the person who's trying to take those selfies and runs out of power on your phone. Okay, number 14, deodorant. It's a sweaty and smelly affair. Number 17, merch, which stands for merchandise. Here's the thing, don't wear K-pop merch from other groups. Big no-no. Right? Don't go to a BTS concert wearing Blackpink merchandise. Number 18, light sticks. No, we're not talking about lightsabers, though I would like to go... Anyway, um, don't forget your light sticks because everyone has them. Did you bring light sticks to the concert, Rebecca, Wendy? Did you have your light stick? You had a light stick. She knows what she's talking about. And this is probably the most important of all, number 23P. Apparently, it's possibly a four or five hour wait before you even get in the stadium. And there are no toilets outside, so empty your bladder before time and give yourself enough time to have to wait in line. Really handy, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever been a first-timer in a situation like a K-pop concert or another place and you just didn't know what's going on. What's it like for a first-timer walking into a church service? Someone with no church background. Now, some of you remember this firsthand. Maybe some of you are here, and this is the first time you've walked in a church service. It's kind of strange, isn't it? We sing, um, but we're not drunk. Like, who does that? Apart from drunk karaoke singers, right? Uh, we, there's praying. Sometimes you pray together. Sometimes the person up here does it. Um, there are times where you're supposed to stand. Other times you're supposed to sit, open Bibles, and, or, you know, and then you listen to some guy talking for 30 minutes. Like, what's all that about? Now, at this church, uh, you've probably experienced already, we try to explain things as much as we can. But even then, it's a bit strange, yeah? Well, imagine walking into a church where the gatherings were way messier than the one you've seen here. In fact, you'd call it disorderly, where nothing gets explained. Everyone seems to be there to have their own experience, spiritual experience. And everyone is there fighting for a chance to display their gifts, their abilities, their experiences. And they're not just one person talking, they're kind of talking over each other. 
And then there are some really strange things that happen at random times. Again, not explained. And people would suddenly speak or pray aloud in what sounds like gibberish. Now that was something like the church in Corinth. The church were kind of putting under the microscope in the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a a real city um, in the ancient world where it is now in modern Greece. And uh, Paul, the writer of the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is writing to a church that he founded, that he was the pastor of, and he's writing to them because they were a really messy church. So what is God's message to this messy church? But also to any church, a church like ours, any church that wants greater spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences. What's God's message? Well, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, uh, the back half, 12, 13, 14. And as I said last week, these three chapters are a bit like a sandwich or a hamburger. All right, you've got bread on either side. So on chapter 12 and in chapter 14 on either side, you've got spiritual gifts. There's discussion about these spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts. Now, at the center is what we looked at last week. And the center of a burger and a sandwich is always the most important part, isn't it? Because it's the meat, yeah? So last week's one, as I said, was the most important chapter on love. And the point we looked at last week is that gifts without love equal nothing, okay? Nothing. Nothing is worth anything without love, no matter how gifted or spiritual you are. So this chapter... We're going to look at how love gets applied to a church that's so eager for these spiritual gifts and experiences. What does love look like on the ground? The answer is iOS. And I'm not talking about Apple devices. I've just gone Android, so, you know, I I feel like a hypocrite. Okay? iOS. S stands for spirit or spiritual gifts. When it comes to using spiritual gifts, you keep in mind the I and the O. I stands for intelligible Right? Intelligible means understandable. O stands for orderliness, and you can see that is points two and three of my outline. Um, the plan today is I'm going to preach a slightly shorter sermon so that we can have time for questions. Okay? So if you have any questions, jot it down, have it, keep it in mind, and you get to ask them in a moment. So let me pray and let's get right into it. Father, help us at this time in the afternoon to grapple with a part of the Bible that's not just long but hard to understand at parts. But we don't want to just understand in our heads. We want to be the kind of church that loves better. So help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to do is to look at what is meant by the two key spiritual gifts in this chapter. The gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. The gift of tongues, firstly, um, or the gift of languages, because the word tongues and language is the same word in the language the Bible was uh, written in. And to do that, we need to go back to Acts chapter 2. So have a look at the screen. When God poured out His Holy Spirit and the church was started, right? this is what happened. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So tongues as a gift, spiritual gift, you can, here's my definition, but I think it's probably close to what um, this chapter is teaching, is that it's a God-given supernatural ability to what? To speak in a language or languages not previously known or learned by the speaker. 
Yeah, that, that seems to be what's going on in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, if you read on, these unknown languages or languages that were unknown to the speaker were actually known languages to other people there because as people from all over the world were there, they started hearing these people declare God's praises in their own language from all over the place. All right? So they were known languages. Now, some people would argue that because of Acts, the gift of tongues elsewhere must be known human languages. I'm not really sure that it's necessarily that narrow. I think in 1 Corinthians, you, could de- you definitely want to say it includes known human languages, but I don't think it's necessarily limited to that. If you want to ask more about that, you can later on question time. But even if it's not a known language in existence, we want to say that it has to be meaningful in some sense. Right? Language is a code, if you like. Language is a code. And a code has meaning. You can decode its meaning. Whatever the gift of tongues is, it has to be a decodable code, a decodable message. Because if if it's not meaningful in any sense, then how can it be interpreted? Do you see what I mean? And interpretation is such a big idea here. right? So tongues is a language, whether known or unknown, whether in existence or hypothetical, Some people may even think angelic language, whatever it is, has to be a meaningful language, but it's not known by the speaker. Now, what else do we know about tongues? Tongues in the New Testament, including the book of Acts, points to the gift of tongues primarily being for prayer and praise. It's primarily something directed to God. Now, you see that. um, Have your Bibles open. Verse 14. We didn't read this before, so today is a good time to make sure you have your Bibles or your apps open on the right uh, chapter. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. It's prayer. And then verse 16, he talks about when you are praising God in the spirit. Again, talking about tongues. Those with the gift of tongues describe it as being able to pray and praise directly from their spirits, their own spirits, bypassing the mind or the understanding. It's sort of having a heart-to-heart with God. Right? in a language that you may not understand, but f- from your heart to God, um, in the Ronan Keating, the singer kind of way, it's, it's you say it best when you say nothing at all sort of thing. Heart to heart with God, from your spirit to God, bypassing the mind. That's how those with the gift describe it as. Now, some of you here have never, ever seen this in operation. But many of you perhaps have. And I would wager that a bunch of us may have had negative experiences in certain churches and it's actually been more off-putting or weird or, or even quite confronting and because of that you think, nah, this, this whole thing is bogus. Now the key with this, as with any part of an experience that you encounter, is don't let a reaction to an error create more error. Now I do want to say that it is true that some churches handle this really badly. I think quite plainly in, dis- in disobedience to 1 Corinthians 14, or we'll come to what that might be in a f- later. But just because they're in error about how they handle it doesn't mean that you should react so strongly that you decide the whole thing is false. Do you know what I mean? We want to look at what the Bible says, and the Bible certainly does talk about a genuine gift of tongues. There are fakes, of course, with anything, but there is genuine. So we're looking at what's genuine through the Bible. Okay, but there's tongues for you. What about prophecy? We'll come to definition in a moment. But um, usually we think of prophecy as telling the future, right? It's predictive prophecy. 
But you know, in the Bible, prophecy is not really all about predicting the future. I just think of the Old Testament prophets. If you know books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, right? They're as much about the past and the present as they are about the future, aren't they? God is offering, saying some word of judgment on God on His people in the present because of their behavior in the past. So it's actually more helpful to think of prophecy not just about prediction, not just foretelling, but the heart of prophecy is forth-telling, right? Not foretelling, forth-telling. That is, you're telling forth something that God has revealed to you. That's the main part of prophecy. And that might be predictive, but it may be something in the past or the, or the present. So central to prophecy is that God reveals something to you and you speak it to others. That's really at the heart of prophecy. Now here I need to say that there are different levels of revelation from God. Okay? There are different levels of revelation from God. At the highest level is God revealing His Word. And when He reveals it to His Word, in the Old Testament particularly, it's to prophets, special prophets, a certain category of prophets, people like Moses and Samuel and Elijah and you name them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the ones who wrote the Old Testament prophet books. That is highest level revelation because when he reveals his word to them, there is no question it's from God. And there's no question that every word they speak to God's people is from God. Do you see what I mean? It's 100% from God and 100% pure. They spoke God's word in a way that others didn't. And that's why their words became scripture. That's the highest level revelation in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? You would think, well, if Old Testament is prophets, New Testament prophets may be at the same level. Actually, here's the interesting thing. No. In the New Testament, the highest level revelation comes not to prophets in the New Testament, but actually to apostles. All right? Apostles, the 12 disciples of Jesus plus Paul, and those first-hand witnesses to what happened to Jesus and those that Jesus interacted with. Apostles, they're the people who wrote the New Testament, Scripture. So if you like, inheritance, uh, the, the heirs to Old Testament prophets is not New Testament prophets, like the ones we read about in 1 Corinthians 14, or even in the book of Acts. The heir to Old Testament prophets is New Testament apostles. So in both cases, what do you want to say is the highest level of revelation where you will say 100% it is the pure Word of God, unquestionably the pure Word of God. Well, where do we find that now? Old and New Testament. Our Bible, 66 books. This is really important, right? And God has stopped revealing Himself in that way at that highest level because the Bible is here for us. But... There are, there are, in the Old Testament, and particularly now we're talking about the New Testament gift of prophecy, there is a lower level revelation. And this revelation, as God you know, speaks to people or prompts them, or you, know, you may have felt God lead you in certain subjective ways, that's God speaking to you when it's genuine by His Spirit. Well, that is not the same level of Scripture, right? That is a lower level revelation, and it's subject to Scripture, it always comes under Scripture, and that's why it can be and must be evaluated. Evaluated by Scripture. And so verse 29, you know, when it talks later on about how prophecy is to function in the church, it says, weigh carefully what is said. We'll come to that in a moment, right? Because it stands under Scripture. So let me get to the definition of prophecy. Here it is. Prophecy is a God-given word or insight 
that's spoken to the needs of persons, communities, or situations to build them up. Right, God-given word or insight spoken to the needs of persons, communities, situations to build them up. Um, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 14. We read it earlier. Let's read it again. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now that kind of captures that too, right? It's to build them up. Now, some people think, well, if that's the case, then prophecy is pretty much the same as preaching, like what I'm doing here, or teaching, right? what you guys do in your CGs or, or in other circumstances. Isn't that what prophecy is? Probably not. Probably not. Now, I think there is some overlap, but if you like, I think there, it's helpful to distinguish them. I think teaching and preaching is primarily, and what I'm doing here on Sunday by Sunday, is primarily explaining the Bible and helping people to learn and apply the Bible in their life. I think that's primarily preaching and teaching. Right? And God speaks through the Bible to you through the preached message and the taught message. Yes, He does. It is revelatory in that sense. But it's primarily about that, explaining what the Bible says to help you apply the Bible. Now, prophecy, as you see from that de definition, is, is much more responsive to the needs and the situation. Don't you see? Much more responsive. It's more about tailoring or God tailoring a message through a person right, to that moment, for that moment, for that situation. It's much more responsive. Less about teaching the biblical content, though We'll see later on that the Bible is very important to, to weigh up what prophecy is and whether it's genuine. But it's less about direct teaching and applying the Bible as it is about God responding to, speaking into a situation, much more responsive, situational, and so on. That's maybe a helpful distinction. Okay, so that's prophecy. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, and let me remind you the two central ideas. You get these two ideas, and the whole chapter will make sense to you. That is the I and the O of iOS, right? Intelligible, orderly. So let's go. Point number two, intelligible. Now, I want you for a moment to imagine again walking into that church service in Corinth. In their gathering, a bunch of people with the gift of tongues would just start speaking aloud, praying or praising God aloud in what sounds to everyone else like gibberish. Now, these people with the gift of tongues think it's a wonderful experience because it strengthens their faith. It helps them pray and praise. They may have even thought that if you are not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, and you came in and witnessed that, that that would so amaze you that you'd want to know Jesus. But actually what happened, if you can imagine walking into a situation like that, is quite different. Because if you don't have the gift of tongues, or if it's the first time you've been to church, how are you feeling as you witness this? You're pretty excluded, aren't you? There's a bunch of people in their own experience, and nothing is explained, and everyone else is like, okay, you guys are having a good time, but we don't know what's going on here, and we don't have what you have. And if you actually were not a follower of Jesus, an unbeliever, you're coming in and you're hearing all this gibberish everywhere, you're probably pretty weirded out. You're probably not drawn to want to know Jesus better, okay? Now, some of you may have actually been to churches, and these kind of things happen. And you may remember as an outsider what that feels like. So what does Paul say into that situation? Well, he wants the Corinthians to essentially grow up. Because when it comes to gathered worship, the key is intelligibility. It's got to be understandable. Let's read the first few verses of chapter 14 again. You see that really clearly, don't you? Follow the way of love, verse 1, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue 
does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Okay, remember last chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the meat in the sandwich? All about love. And what is love about? Love is seeking the good of others above myself, building others up over me. And you cannot build others up if they can't understand what you say. Simple, isn't it? I mean, maybe in terms of flashy spiritual experience, tongues is more impressive than prophecy or teaching or preaching. But in terms of love, you see, Paul is making the point. Prophecy, teaching, preaching is greater because they're intelligible, because people can understand them. And so you should only exercise the gift of tongues in a gathering if it can be made intelligible. That's his point. It's not like you can't exercise tongues, but only when it's interpreted. Whether you interpret it or someone else interprets it, only then will it be helpful for others. And that's basically really the whole bit on tongues. Um, we don't have time to cover the, the, the next few bits, but let me just run through quickly what he does. Um, verses 6 to 12, the next section, the next paragraph or so, Paul is going to illustrate it. And we read it before. You know, you've got the uh, trumpet sounding for war. You've got the instruments, right? Making the same point, illustrating it. The next section, verses 13 to 19, Paul is going to apply it even more. And he had, uh, look at the conclusion, though, to that section. So look at verse 18 and 19. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's pretty strong, right? Because yeah, intelligibility trumps everything because of how closely it ties to love. Now, verses 20 to 25, again, not enough time to go through it in detail. He's going to quote the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah 28, if you want the reference. But the point he's trying to make in that section is actually tongues will alienate unbelievers rather than bring them closer to God. Right? Remember, some people might have been thinking, well, an unbeliever walks in, everyone's speaking in tongues, they're going to be drawn closer to Jesus. Actually, he's saying it'll probably have the opposite effect. And he quotes an Old Testament passage to make that point. Then he says, prophecy may do the opposite. Prophecy might be the gift that draws people closer to God. All right? So that's uh, the first point. Love is intelligible, the I. Now, verses 26 to the end of the chapter will pick up the O, the other key point, which is the love in the gathering is orderly. Now, again, I want you to transport you back to the Corinthian church and what it might have looked like going to their service. Now, not only uh, would tongue speakers have been quite disorderly, speaking out of turn, maybe speaking over each other all at once, it seemed like maybe the, those with the gift of prophecy were also like this. Uh, so someone with a gift of prophecy would be so eager to exercise their gift of prophecy that they would just stand up and talk and just go on and on and on, not let others get a word in. And some have so much confidence in their own prophetic gifts that they think what they say is sort of the high-level revelation stuff. You can't question or evaluate what I'm saying because it is the word of the Lord. That might have been happening in the assembly too. Now to them... Paul is going to apply, again, love. And he says the love is, the second point, orderly. So we're going to skip down to verse 26, and let's read a few of those verses. Verse 26. 
What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Orderliness. It's how you show love. Now that next section, verses 34 to 35, that's a tricky bit. And we don't have time to deal with it, but it's dealing with women in the assembly. How does it fit into the context? Well, I think the background is that there were women in the service at that time who were also being disorderly in their own way. And it, and it seems to be coming as a, as a result of the weighing up of prophecy. So when it came to the time when people would be weighing up what the prophets have said, the women in Corinth, or some women in Corinth, took the opportunity to openly question and speak up in a way that in their culture, and this is important, in their culture would have been quite dishonoring to their husbands. Right? I think that's what's going on in the background. Paul is not saying women should never speak or can't speak or pray or prophesy or do anything from up front. So what Lisa's doing is not against the scriptures. In fact, in chapter 11, only four chapters, three chapters earlier, he actually says that women pray and prophesize. Okay? So women can actually prophesy and women can pray to the assembly. But I think the context is when it comes to the weighing up of prophecy, for some reason, somehow some of the women there were doing something quite disorderly and dishonoring. And that's why he's talking about what he talks about in verses 34 and 35. Again, um, that's probably much more I can say about that. Feel free to ask about it later on. Okay, so the conclusion of the whole chapter, we're right to the end of chapter 14, is verses 39 to 40. All right, look at those last two verses. This is how he sums it all up. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Yeah? Three chapters, 12, 13, 14, we'll be looking at the last three weeks, same message or the consistent message. When it comes to spiritual gifts, spiritual things, spiritual experiences, love trumps everything. Love trumps everything. And what does love always think? Love always thinks, what's going to build others up? What's going to strengthen the body of Christ, the church? In other words, how can I put we before me? That's my last point. Love is we before me. Now, in this chapter, on three occasions, we before me means that even if you have the gift, you choose not to use it in the assembly. So verse 28, 